0: This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out, what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dave Isai, founder of StoryCorps. This message comes from NPR sponsor Subaru, celebrating their Share the Love event now through January 3rd. By year's end, Subaru and their retailers will have donated over $250 million to charity. Visit Subaru.com share.
1: The Guinness Book of World Records has recognized Bollywood lyricist Samir Anjan for writing a staggering 3,524 songs. But deep in Tennessee, one man might have everyone beat. Jim Von Stein has been writing songs since he was nine years old. In the last few years, he's written a song or two a day. Every day.
2: Dad, just how many songs have you written now? I
3: guess probably 8,000 at least.
1: But almost nobody has ever heard them.
3: It's funny. At one point, I kind of made a deal with God. I said, let me live long enough to write 200 songs. Well, within a couple of years, I was almost up on 200 songs. So I made another deal with God. I said, let me write 10,000 songs. But, you know, Then I felt like, oh my goodness, now i got to really write a lot of songs. It's because you don't want to get there and God be mad at you when you get there.
1: For our last episode of the season, what happens when fear is so paralyzing that it stops you from following your dream? It's the StoryCorps Podcast from NPR. I'm Camila Kashani. Around Jim Stein's home, you'd see mountains and valleys of songbooks, homemade cassette tapes, and CDs. Every notebook, scrap of paper, or napkin has lyrics on it. Jim's son, Jason, sat down to ask him some questions.
2: What does it take to write a song, and where do you start?
3: I write one lyric line, and before I'm done with it, the next line's already coming. It can be simple as someone saying something, and it inspires me. Boom, next thing you know, I'm writing a song. The most I wrote in one year was 1,556. One reason I never really told people I wrote that many songs because it does sound kind of off-the-wall crazy that someone would, but it's, it's not something that I can even stop from happening.
2: And I wouldn't believe you if I didn't see it myself, but I've seen it. You literally write a song and the amount of time it takes to make a pot of coffee.
3: You gotta have heartstrings. And that's why I write songs. I try to write not just about me, not about any of my life, but about everybody's life.
1: Jim can write a song about basically anything, and he always starts with his imagination. Sometimes he'd take a globe, spin it around, and see where his finger would land. One time it landed on the Mississippi River.
2: Woman, clean run to the northern.
1: Jim was a military kid, so he moved all over the country in the 60s and 70s. But there was one consistent thing in his childhood, a love for music.
3: My mom used to listen to uh, people like Elvis and Patsy Cline, which really that touched my heart for those lyrics, those stories hit me, you know. And my dad, he barely played on a guitar. He played three chords, and I think one of them was wrong. But every once in a while, he drank a little, and he'd drink, He'd get that guitar out and play, you know. And he loved to play the song, Old Shep, because I'd cry like a baby, me and my brother. I still cry when I hear that song. The dog does these wonderful things throughout that boy's life. And then the boy becomes a young man, and of course, naturally, the dog passed on. Because at that time, I'm nine years old, so I've never been in love with a girl or any of that stuff. All I knew was real dog love, you know. That song inspired me so much to believe that you could take a whole lifetime of somebody or a dog and have it done in a, in a three-minute song. And that made me want to be a songwriter.
1: Even as a little kid, Jim knew what his calling was. And when he was nine years old, he grabbed a number two pencil and started writing.
3: But I was writing stupid things like, my baby sweet, my baby washed my feet. But I knew if I kept doing it, eventually I would have more experiences through life. And I would get better as long as I kept doing it. Of course, when I was 13, I wanted to get a guitar My dad said, you're not going to have that noisemaker around here. (laughs) So I never thought about playing the guitar at 30. But that made me become a a lyricist, for sure, because that was the only way I could connect to music, you know, was through lyrics, still telling stories.
1: In ninth grade, Jim would always walk around with his songbook in his hand, which, believe it or not, wasn't winning him any popularity contests.
3: And then somebody stole my book with about 100 songs in it when I was, I think, in the ninth grade and threw it away. And that kind of just made me want to quit for a little while.
1: Eventually, he started writing again, but he never tried playing music professionally. His fear got the best of him. Jim met his wife, Becky, right out of high school. They got married, and he started working at a shipyard. Jason was born in 1982, and that Christmas... Becky bought Jim his first guitar. He could finally put music to the songs he'd been writing.
3: I was playing with a few other guys. We were playing cover songs at the time. And one of my friends said, well, you write songs. Why don't you write one? So I wrote one. And I played it that night for him. And he goes, that stinks. (laughs) And I'm like, what, you set me up? And he said, no, you, you just write another one. And the second one I actually wrote, they liked that song. Of course, after that, then I started writing more often because of it.
1: He started using all of his free time to write songs, and he carried a four track recorder with him everywhere he went so he could start getting them down. He would sometimes use his own life and family for inspiration.
2: You worked at the shipyard for many years, and they would send you out to San Francisco. And I remember when you came back, there was something different. Like you really missed us a lot. And I remember you came back and you wrote that song Always Missing You that was 1988 and then we did a recording of that for mom She heard that and she started crying I was like five little me singing that song with you
1: Jason grew up surrounded by his father's music, and he loved hearing it. But that was one of the few times they sang together. Just like his father, Jason's fear held him back. Even when Jim bought him his first guitar when he was eight years old. Jason never touched it.
2: I never played music growing up cuz I was like nervous of that and we already got the best musician in our house. When you write those songs, those were number 1 hits. Just we're in a apartment complex and nobody hears it. Like you didn't go to any school to learn this and you know I've never seen you go take classes. You just did it. Why didn't you want to play your songs out ever dad?
3: I knew I wasn't a bad songwriter, but I didn't think I was a good singer in any way. And I didn't think I was a great guitar player by any means either. That's kind of kept me from going up there. I was trying to find other people to sing my songs. But then I found out that when you do, other people take the liberty of doing their own thing to your song. And I wanted my songs to fall or stand on their own, you know. But as far as going out and playing, it was more a fear than anything.
1: In 2004, Jim was asked to play at a music festival, opening up for another musician. But he was terrified of being on stage by himself, in front of a large crowd.
2: First time you ever played out in public, you're like hiding behind your songbook. You hired musician friends and gave them the money. And so you can see you sitting behind all these other musicians.
3: When they introduced me, I just waved over. <laughs> so all the crowd saw was my hand.
1: <laughs> he spent the whole show hiding behind his music stand, and after that, Jim only performed in front of an audience a few other times. At first, it was the fear stopping him, but then it became something else.
2: When did you first realize you were sick, Ned?
1: After the break. Jim faces the possibility of never singing or playing music again. Stay with us. As Jim approached middle age, his pile of songs kept getting bigger, and he was still balancing a full-time job. After he left the shipyard, he started working in heating and air.
3: When you install air conditioning systems, you crawl under houses, and there's generally 18 inches of height, so you're crawling on your elbows. So when you do, you're kicking up dust, and there's mildews and molds and all kinds of poisons. So I knew that, you know, it was going to catch up to me.
1: By the early 2000s, he started having trouble breathing. And it kept getting worse. Over time, even basic things started becoming a struggle, like picking up a guitar, let alone singing.
3: Well, they told me I had severe emphysema, real severe emphysema. There was a uh, doctor, and she came in there and she said, uh, here's a picture of your lung. And they were cold black. They told me, uh, you know, that I had expiration date. Jason, I knew what was up. I'm not a fool. Uh, You know, I'm only breathing in uh, three-fifths capacity in both lungs. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I can barely walk across the room without losing my air. It's like you're going underwater and you're trying to catch your breath. That's what it feels like all the time. But I'm still breathing. That's what matters.
1: In November of 2016, Jim came down with a near-fatal case of pneumonia. Jason didn't know whether or not his dad was going to come out of the hospital.
3: I remember you asked me, uh, what uh, were my regrets? Did I have any? And I told you I regretted that I didn't go out and play my music so people could hear it. You know, here I've written all these songs, yet nobody's ever heard them because I didn't go out and play them.
1: Jason felt helpless, because he didn't know if his dad would make it out of the hospital. So he made a decision.
3: You stopped everything you were doing and learned songs of mine, which amazed me because some of them are difficult. You learned every one of them, and I didn't realize it until you started playing them.
1: Jason picked up a guitar that had been building up dust, one he never really played, and he started learning his dad's songs. One by one. He'd play back Jim's old recordings on repeat for hours a day until he started getting them down. And then, he hit up every open mic, every cafe with a stage, every music joint that would book him, and he shared his dad's songs for anyone and everyone who would listen.
3: Why did you decide to
2: do it? I mean, because your songs deserve to be heard. You can't spend your entire life devoting yourself to something And then nobody hears that? Nobody recognizes that? That's not okay. You're Salvador Dali of songwriting. Okay, this isn't normal what you've accomplished and what you've done.
3: You've done more than anybody has ever given you credit for. I was amazed how great you were doing it. And you, you just get better every time you play them. We played one show together once. It was late summer,
2: and it was awesome to finally be able to play with you. But... I remember you telling me, Jason, you need to do the singing. You're telling me under your breath that you can't breathe and you can't sing and you can't do this, you know. And we're trying to like not make a scene of that for the audience.
3: The crowd, you could tell they were a little stressed. And I made a joke that I didn't want them betting on what side of the chair I'd fall off of. So they laughed and that kind of made it okay. Yeah. I probably noticed,
2: you know, how bad it was at that show. You know, they give you a sticker when you went to the hospital for the first time. And I took that sticker and I put it inside my guitar case. So every time I open that case, I'm reminded of why I'm going out there and doing this.
3: I mean, every time I see you, I get chills. You know, I wish I could be there live to see it. But still, I feel like I'm there.
1: When COVID hit, it was too dangerous for Jim to leave the house, let alone go watch Jason play. But Jason still made sure his dad could hear him. Every single show, he sets up a live stream for his dad so he can see it all.
2: The thought of playing music is terrifying. But by the time I started going out and playing your music, and you hearing that from home, negates any fears that I have. This is the greatest feeling I've ever had. We're telling our story. I'm telling your story, you know, which is my story. So it means a lot more.
3: I am uh, basically three years past the expiration date on me that the doctor gave me which, you know, I kind of figured that was going to be the case because, you know, I'm not a typical person. I'm a 78 where everybody else is a 45 record. And I run at that speed I always have. You can't change some things, you know, that's part of life. You got so much time in your hourglass, and it's how you use it. And that's up to you. How do you want to be remembered, Ted? Just... They think I was a decent, honest, good guy. But as far as me, I'd rather remember the songs. Long after I'm dead and gone and people forgot who I was, if those songs are any good, they'll still mean something to those people, and they won't even know who wrote it. It'll still mean something. The song has its own life. That's
2: the beautiful thing about music.
3: And you actually play those songs just like I wrote them. You are the the voice for my songs. I can hear the whistle Crying like a lonely
1: child In the night That's all for this episode and this season of the StoryCorps podcast. It was produced by Eleanor Vasily, who's our lead producer, and edited by Jared Sport, who's our senior producer. Max Youngrice is our associate producer. Our technical director is Jarrett Floyd, who also composed our theme song. Our fact checker is Erica Anderson. Jasmine Morris is our story consultant. Special thanks to Will Davis. To see what music we use in the episode, go to storycore.org, where you can also check out original artwork by Lynn Lucien. For the Storycore Podcast, I'm Camila Kashani. Catch you next season.
2: A
3: ghost of time is calling, the dead of night is falling. like it's slipping away. A ghost of time is calling. The dead of night is falling. Feels like I'm losing my whole world today. Feels like it's slipping away.
0: Hi, Dave Isay here with a special request to our family of podcast listeners. I founded StoryCorps 19 years ago because I believe that listening to others reminds people that they matter and won't be forgotten. That there's tremendous poetry and grace and wisdom in the stories hiding in plain sight all around us if we just take the time to listen. 650,000 participants later, I believe that now more strongly than ever. StoryCorps is a nonprofit public service organization, and we rely on your support to do our work bringing the country closer together, one story at a time. If this podcast has ever made you feel something, if it's made you laugh or made you cry, please consider making a gift to support our work today. Go to donate.storycorps.org/podcast. Thank you and happy holidays. Support for this podcast comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting a private corporation funded by the American people.
1: Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about
0: this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR.
1: Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit. We want it to be a special one.
0: Magic can happen and good luck can happen
1: and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR.